Have you ever wondered what it's like to sit in on a magazine editorial meeting? Well, this is your chance. You're listening to Salt Lake Speaks, a monthly podcast where our editors, writers, and staff dig deeper into stories, chat with newsmakers, and talk amongst ourselves about arts, culture, food, music, politics, or whatever else might strike our fancy. After all, we are Utah's biggest fans. Hi, this is Salt Lake Speaks from Salt Lake Magazine. I'm Glenn Warchel, managing editor of Salt Lake Magazine. I'm talking today with County Mayor, Salt Lake County Mayor, Ben McAdams, and we're going to discuss homelessness, uh, where we are now, but more about where do we go from here, referring, of course, to the Rio Grande operation uh, that has been a heavy hand of law enforcement rather than treatment. Um, and today, I'm welcoming Mayor Ben McAdams, who, among other things, <clears throat> spent two nights on the streets with the homeless. Uh, that I think gives him uh, a, a very unique uh, perspective on all of this. Amir McAdams, um, how do you how do you do you have any concerns with Operation Rio Grande? You know, I think um, we've really got to the point over the last few years, and it really exploded this summer, where um, we know the long-term solution to some of the challenges we think with homelessness is treatment whether it's drug treatment, job training, housing. Some, those are the things that we have to invest in for the long term if we want to make a difference. Um, we did get to the point where there was a public safety crisis that was overshadowing everything we were trying to do down there. So, um, so hence Operation Rio Grande where the state and Salt Lake City. Now Salt Lake County is more the human services component of it. We, we don't have a law enforcement um, there's a unified police department that um, provides police services, but not in Salt Lake City. So the law enforcement part of it was a Salt Lake City and state of Utah endeavor, and Salt Lake County is on the human services end of it. I did have some concerns with Operation Rio Grande, although I, I am a supporter, I think because it was the reality is what we were dealing with with the major public safety crisis. But, but we know that if we want to make a sustainable difference, if we want to make the, the situation better in the long term, what we need to do is to provide treatment. We need to provide drug, drug treatment, behavioral health treatment, mental health, access to jobs and job training. Those are the things that are going to make it um, better for the long term. Um, the Operation Rio Grande really is a short-term effort to address the, the lawlessness and the public safety challenges we see in the Rio Grande. And I think we got to the point uh, that things were so bad down there, the lawlessness, it really was anarchy in the Rio Grande area that we needed to do something and, uh, and hence Operation Rio Grande was born. Um, yeah, and for a second here, I want to put uh, the listeners into the Wayback Machine and go way back to this spring, yeah. <laughs> the previous <laughs> spring, when um, this all began to roll out, what was called the new model, and you were behind that, and it was about treatment, housing, and getting a, a, a segment of our population that is seriously struggling back on path in a compassionate way. We moved forward from that, and now we're in the midst of Operation Rio Grande, which by its very nature is not sustainable. Right. And, and has anything changed vis-a-vis -vis the new model based on what's happened? So Public I think support still there? Yeah, I think so. I think it's worth recognizing the new model hasn't been scrapped. We're still moving ahead with this new model of homeless services, one that's focused more on treatment get by addressing the root causes of homelessness rather than just band-aiding it with a meal and a bed. 
um, but getting to the root causes of what's causing someone's crisis, that still that plan is still in place, and that's moving forward. I feel like we have uh, even stronger support from the state and Salt Lake City for that plan now today than we did before, as they've gotten into the problem and see seen it. You know, we, we, we really are to the point, we've put pencil to paper to see that we cannot afford to incarcerate our way out of this problem. And we're seeing that with Operation Rio Grande. We needed to, um, we, we did need to um, ad address some of the criminal, uh, criminal issues, cr uh, public safety issues in the Rio Grande, but there was no way that we could incarcerate, we can't afford to incarcerate our way out of it. There aren't enough jail beds in the state. There's not enough money in the state and the county and the city budget to lock up all of the people for minor offenses or even uh, offenses of uh, related to an addiction or a behavioral health issue we can't afford it and we've we've costed those out and it's not affordable so i think it's brought people around full circle to to the new model and that we really if we want to make a sustainable impact we have to help people uh to address the root causes of their challenges and and i think that's where we are so operation rio grande it started with phase one which was was very much law enforcement focused but phase two is is starting to move forward and phase two is something that I've been more uh, intimately involved with and that is bringing online the treatment beds uh, and the drug treatment behavioral health treatment that's going to take some time to spin it up you can't just flip a switch and have um, counselors and therapists and, and drug treatment programs up overnight so what we've seen is it's going to come in line online over the next six to eight months we have uh, uh, almost 40 beds that will be made available this week early September and then um, over the next six to eight months, we're going to have a total of 200 new treatment beds that will be brought online uh, with state and county funding. And that's really going to start, um, I think, the sustainable change that we need in the system to start getting people, helping them to get better. One of the things that I have picked up in the media and from people that are broadly involved in, as citizens in the city is that um, there seems to be um, a lack of appetite for as you pointed out, long-term solutions. This isn't going to be simple. Uh, even the Bible tells us that the poor will be with us, which yeah. I'm not sure was the most helpful statement. <laughs> but but um, we're moving forward with this, but everybody, a lot of people seem to be very satisfied with the police involvement in Rio Grande. Is there, is there an appetite? Has the citizens of the county hit a sort of compassion exhaustion level where they just want it fixed now? I think there was some compassion exhaustion, if you want to put it that way, with, um, you know, people are compassionate and, and we see the, the needs of really, really compelling needs in our community. But what I think a lot of people started to see is it was overshadowed by the drug trade. And you had, a, over the summer, some very high-profile uh, you know, a national uh, baseball player who was assaulted in town. You had uh, a homeless woman who was hit by a car um, and, and assaults. People were being killed. We had a series of three or four murders in early Jan uh, July uh, in the Rio Grande area, and people saw that. And there was outrage, and I have to admit that I myself, I feel the compassion, but I also do feel the outrage. And some of it's the outrage for an area of our capital city where you can't go and feel safe, or members of the public can't go and feel safe, or businesses in that area, or residents in that area don't feel safe. I, I feel some outrage for that. I think that outrage is also balanced by compassion. Um, we have a, a pretty good homeless services system in Utah, and yet we're telling those who are vulnerable to come to this area that's the least safe area in the state 
to come to receive your services. And, and so I think even you, some of the law enforcement efforts that we've seen in Operation Rio Grande can be motivated but from a place of compassion as well. It is, I think it is motivated by some outrage, but motivated by a place of compassion that we're asking our vulnerable to come to this place. You know, you're, you're struggling to overcome an addiction. Well, we've got treatment services for you, but to get them, you've got to walk through places where you're being offered drugs every 20 feet and come there and get help. You know, that's not a compassionate thing to do either. One of the things about Operation Rio Grande that I saw from your point of view might be helpful is up until Operation Rio Grande, the state was sort of an, uh, a dispassionate observer in this chaotic situation, this crisis to say the least. Now we have the lieutenant governor as a sort of czar of homelessness coordinating things. We have the extremely powerful Speaker of the House, Greg Hughes, uh, coming in and getting involved. Um, and although he seems to like the short-term solutions better than the long-term, but you, your programs desperately needed state help uh, through Medicaid and other things mm -hmm. to actually function and work. Do you think in a way you've, you've perhaps trapped the state into, they, they're, they're in it now? Yeah, I, you know, I was so happy to see that the state was willing to get involved. Greg Hughes, you know, we don't, don't always see eye to eye, but what, one of the things I love about him is he's, he jumps into problems with both feet. Now, I've, I've been in, in, in cases where that's not a good thing, where he jumps in with both feet. But in this case, he, on, on homelessness, uh, just because we have different perspectives on things. But in this case, I think we share a perspective that something has to be done about the Rio Grande, and he has jumped in with both feet, and I appreciate that. But And he is, he is the Speaker of the House, and he is powerful. He's also the legislative branch, and so it's hard for the legislative branch of the state to bring the State Department of Public Safety, the State uh, Department of Human Services or Workforce Services to the table. And so um, to, ne to finally have the attention of the governor and the lieutenant governor focusing on this as well, is making a, a lot of difference to us. You know, the lieutenant governor, um, by statute, is the chair of the statewide homelessness coordinating committee, uh, and that's a role that he's held uh, for the for the entire time that he's been in office. Um, and and we've been waving the red flag, saying this is not something that we can tackle alone. These people are coming from across the state. In fact, they're coming a lot of times due to decisions that have been made at the state level, like the justice reinvestment initiative, where the state said we're going to incarcerate fewer people and put them in treatment. And so they changed the laws so that fewer people were sent to prison, but then they didn't pass Medicaid expansion. So these people were sent from state prison to the streets of Salt Lake City with no treatment option. And, and so I think they recognized that some of what we were dealing with in Salt Lake City and Salt Lake County was a consequence of decisions that were made at the state level, and there was some responsibility for them to step in. So it was, it was incredibly refreshing to have them step in and really commit um, fully to to addressing these problems. I think the only the only thing that could have happened better is to maybe have had that commitment sooner. So we could have, um, you know, a, a lot of this stuff could have been uh, executed um, more seamlessly if we had started sooner. But um, I'm not going to let perfect be the enemy good or or beggars can't be choosers. They're at the table now, and I'm happy to have them at the table working with us. Do you think, and to go back to uh, the speaker being involved and and the things you mentioned about sort of the uh, legislature perhaps not quite getting it about treatment versus incarceration. Do you think that the speaker is going to embrace long-term, the necessity of long-term by pushing for funding 
wherever possible because he was one of the Medicaid um, roadblocks. Yeah, I mean, he, he uh, I think very proudly will say he helped to stop Medicaid expansion and, uh, and, and considers that one of his accomplishments. I, I, you know, I, I, he knows that, and I see that differently than him, that I think that was a mistake to pass on that Medicaid expansion. But it's been refreshing for me to hear the Speaker of the House in press conference and other, other places say, if we do not um, expand treatment options, then JRI, the Justice Reinvestment Initiative, is dead. And that's this, this view that we have at the state and the county level that we um, that simply locking up people and warehousing them and throwing away the key is expensive and not sustainable, that we need to treat them. That philosophy started with the Justice Reinvestment Initiative, but when treatment didn't, didn't come on uh, online, we, we, I, you know, I've been saying for a couple of years, as, as of other, many other people saying, if we don't have access to treatment, then JRI will fail. And JRI is failing, and I think that's what we see in the Rio Grande, is the failure of the Justice Reinvestment Initiative to have adequate treatment resources. But to hear the Speaker of the House saying that, um, I think says that he gets it, uh, and, and I think he did get it before, but I think he gets the magnitude of the challenges we're facing now and the urgency to bring those treatment resources online, such that um, we've spent a lot of time over the last month in the context of Operation Rio Grande talking about how we can bring, what can we, what can we, where can we find common ground on um, expanding access to Medicaid, how quickly can we bring these options to the table and start bringing these resources to the table. And we have a proposal right now that we're working on that would bring about $100 million uh, of, tr of treatment and, and coverage to people in need. It'll cover uh, almost 9,000 people in need uh, of the poorest of the poor. So it's, it's not full Medicaid expansion, which is what I would prefer, but um, full Medicaid expansion would bring about $300 million to treatment and cover everybody, uh, uh, everybody in poverty. Um, the plan that we've uh, convened around, or there's some consensus around right now, is about $100 million, so it's about the third the size of that. But it'll, it will make a visible and measurable impact on, the, on what we're trying to do for, for treatment for those who are in the criminal justice system. If I can turn to a couple of things uh, that are, have more, had more personal impact on you. Uh, one of them is that um, as the resource center placement process rolled out this summer, uh, and you can't see it as anything but sort of a fiasco in some cases. Um, we saw some very ugly behavior by residents. I'm thinking of just one example, and I went to several of the meetings, but the Draper meeting in which a homeless man was shouted down by residents for attempting to thank care workers for the, and, pol and political leaders for the things yeah. they had done. How did that strike you? Was that, was that what you expected to see, or did you see a side to your, to your community that um, you didn't think was there? I think that was disappointing. I want to say that I, I certainly understand people having concerns. I think they look at, they look at what we see in the Rio Grande right now, and they, they can only imagine that it's going to be similar to that in their neighborhood. And who would want? Uh, the chaos that we see in Rio Grande in, in anybody's backyard. Um, so I, I think I can understand that. I think um, I, I try to reassure them that it's going to be different, that it, it's a different model entirely, that it, um, and I'm, with all confidence can say that this will be very different, the new model. But people, you know, and people would say, you know, how can we know that it's going to be different? Why don't, we, why don't we see it elsewhere? And I would point out that there actually are providers in Salt Lake City who are following this resource center model. The, the, um, 
VOA, Volunteers of America Youth Resource Center, the YWCA uh, Women's Resource Center in Salt Lake City. Um, and people say, well, why, don't, why aren't we aware of that? And I say, well, that's exactly the point, because they work. They don't have a thousand people out in front committing crimes and, and openly uh, injecting drugs into their into their bodies. So these, system, these, these providers are out there and they do work. They're in our community and that's the new model. But I, I can certainly um, understand, have some empathy for, for people's fears and concerns about what a new resource center might mean for their community. At the same time, reassure them that it's going to look very different. But that, you know, that, self, that shelter site selection, there were two, two processes I'm, I know you're aware of, but the first one uh, led by Salt Lake City um, where they chose uh, four locations that were announced in December, and then um, when a couple of those locations didn't move forward, I'm impressed you're able to keep track of those numbers because it was <laughs> two, then four, it then was, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Originally, we had recommended two. The city wanted to go up to four, and so they did. And then, it, and then, then two of those sites didn't didn't pan out, and so the state legislature came to me and asked me to lead. Um, we were going to settle on three locations. And I'm sure your listeners are now confused about the yeah. numbers too. <laughs> um, but uh, and asked and and charged me actually wrote a, a law putting me um, tasking me with selecting a location um, by March 30th. So it gave me about five weeks to go out and find a location, get it under contract. Um, you know, I, I felt strongly that I wanted to do uh, that. It was important to do a public process with that, knowing that it wasn't going to be fun and it wasn't going to be pretty, but that we needed to solicit public input on this. And so we put together um, a public input process and and went forward and did that. And you know, it, no surprise. I said, look, we're not going to with this public input process. We're not not going to get. So, unanimity. We may not even get support, but what we can do is make a well-informed decision and find out what the flaws are in a certain site and, and make a well-informed decision when we when we finally decide upon a location. So it was, I think, I wasn't surprised that it was uh, ugly and um, we had a lot of public pushback. We knew that would happen, but um, the public process, a public engagement process is never uh, you don't do it because it's pretty, you know, you do it because you want to hear what the public will have to say about something. But I think um, the Draper one in particular got especially ugly um, and it was disappointing. I think that there were many people in Draper who who saw that the prison was being moved out of their community, uh, that there was an ethic and culture of volunteerism in Draper, and that, um, that there might be people there who'd be willing to support a shelter for women and children. So, um, you know, I did a, a town hall together with the mayor of Draper to solicit input from the public there. And, um, you know, unfortunately there were people who were um, not not open to even the idea of, of what this might be anywhere within the boundaries of Draper, and I think that was disappointing. Well, I remember when the, the process back when I said in the Wayback Machine started, um, former mayor, Salt Lake mayor, city mayor, Palmer DePaulis, that's way, way back. Yeah. yeah. Said, the, the, you got to make your luck, and the way you make your luck is to take it to the public, take it to the public, take it to the public, until finally they say they've heard, and they're still not going to be happy, but they feel like they were part of the decision. And that obviously didn't happen. It, on the Salt Lake City side of it when this started, it was done in secrecy and things like that. I'd just like to also point out that the county, as I understood it, started out to be in charge of programs, not placement. Yeah. So that was a city thing, not 
at that point at least, not your bailiwick. So yeah, yeah. the blame would be inappropriate <laughs> placed on you. And the other question I had about this personal impact on you was, you spent, what was it, uh, two months ago now? It was in late March. In late March, you spent two nights and two days. Three days. Three days yes, um, yeah. as a homeless person, sort of undercover, uh, went out. You didn't do it, as I could see, for, for political gain because you didn't um, make it part of your marketing message or anything. But you were actually out there seeing it. Do you think that that, uh, this is sort of a, a, a no-brainer question, but did that change your perspective or reinforce your perspective on who was being dealt with here and who was, who was the lawbreakers and who were the victims and things like that? I think in some ways it both reinforced and changed my perspective. Um, you know, to, to contextualize this, it was the legislation had, had tasked me with finding a site by March 30th, and we had done five, I think, five public hearings at this point, maybe four at this point. Um, and I just felt that there was one perspective that was missing from my um, recommendation that I was, I was tasked with making to the state, and that was um, going out and seeing this firsthand. And, and I needed to see the services. I needed to understand from users of the services what, what worked and what didn't work. And so uh, I was kind of on a whim that I made a decision on a Friday morning that I, that, that afternoon I was going to go and go out for the the weekend and, and, and observe and, and experience it. And so I did. I left my office here at 5 o'clock on a Friday night and walked downtown um, and was there until I came back to my office Sunday night. So it was um, 48 hours, Friday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Came back to my office about 5 p.m. on Sunday. Um, a few things, you know, I think, first of all, I came out of that. Um, you know, there were a lot of people in the midst of that site selection process uh, telling me that what I should do is just hand this back to the state and say, you know, what would be the consequences of not delivering a recommendation? There, there would be none. Um, just hand it back to the state and tell them, you deal with it, I'm done. And uh, I, after that experience came out saying, we need to do something, that the services right now are, are not helping people to get better. It's, it's maybe alleviating the short-term suffering, and that's, you know, that's not to be discredited, I think, but giving them a meal and a bed, but we can do better about connecting them to services that are going to help them overcome crisis. And I came out of that experience saying, no, we have to do something. It, it is that bad down there in Rio Grande. We have to do something, and I'm not going to shirk my responsibility to somebody else because I th felt like if I did, um, nothing would happen and, and something needed to happen. Um, I think the other thing was a little bit of compassion. You know, we say we want people to, why don't they just get a job? Why don't they just... Um, deal with it themselves and you know they're lazy or you know and, and there's certainly there there probably is some of that there's probably some substance use that's enabled by a system but I came away just realizing how much time and energy and calories were spent on just finding my next meal and finding the next place I was going to sleep and thinking about that uh, that there wasn't a lot of time to go to a job interview or to to think about getting some training in that so that I could um, get a better job. That just some compassion about how hard it is to to survive when you have absolutely nothing, um, and the psychological toll that takes. I do want to, as just a disclaimer, I know that three days and two nights um, is only a snapshot, and I have and my depth of understanding is minimal compared to somebody who was actually there, and um, and you know I knew <clears throat> that I was, you know, a, a phone call away from 
a family and a home and health insurance and a bed and a job and a bank account and all of those things were a phone call away. So, you know, I think I was even buffered, even though I was down there and experiencing, I was buffered from what the normal person down there would be experiencing. Um, but I think I did come away with a conviction that we need to move ahead, that, that we're on the right path when we say that we need to realign the system to make it easier for people to get help, easier for someone to have the services and treatment and other options that are going to help them to lift themselves out of poverty. So you would recommend that Speaker Hughes spend 48 hours in the Rio Grande? I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. Um, and, you know, I didn't feel safe down there. And uh, I, I just felt it was something that I needed to do as part of the decision that I was making. And, um, but I wouldn't recommend anybody doing that. Yeah, I would feel less safe if Speaker Hughes was down there with his boxing gloves right. on <laughs> for 48 he's probably, hours. He's probably better capable of defending himself than I was. But, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, just to, to round this out, was there a moment, uh, an experience uh, that, that was very meaningful to you, perhaps an epiphany, uh, crystallized things? something that happened while you were on the streets that, that you carry with you now. Yeah, there, I think there are, there are a handful of things that I, <clears throat> I think about. I will say I think this experience changed me um, and the way that I approach this. But there are you know, a few that I can think of. I remember meeting a couple, a, 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 a father and a mother with their young child. They had a, a child that was nine years old and um, had mild autism. And you know, I know I knew I know a lot about the statistics of homelessness and what the challenges in that. But and I know that um, autism or other health concerns are oftentimes a driver for someone losing a job and losing a home and not being able to afford the stability. And so this person was a statistic, but um, they became real when I saw a, a mother and a father trying to care for their child, and the child asking where they're going to stay, and. Um, you know, and they weren't sure they were going to maybe head to the family shelter. The father had been kicked out of the family shelter, I think, for some uh, getting into a fight. <clears throat> and so, you know, I'm sure there's some culpability there with the with the father as well. But, you know, a young child, I have a nine-year-old, and I thought of my nine-year-old not knowing where his next meal was coming from or his next bed where he's going to sleep that night. And it, again, reinforced the urgency that, um, that we got to do something. You know, one of the other conclusions that we have is that the system does a really good job of of going to the lowest common denominator and helping the homeless. But one of the things that that we've been recommending with the new model is <clears throat> there are homeless kids who are very different than the homeless, the victim of domestic violence, and the needs are different than the, the person in recovery trying to overcome a substance addiction. Uh, the needs are very different. And if we put them all in the same facility in a one-size-fits-all facility, that's a very inexpensive way of giving people a bed for a day and a meal. But it's not a great way to address the underlying root causes. That we needed to separate these populations a little bit, so we can start focusing on their underlying needs. So I think of that experience. I think of, <clears throat> you know, others. I, I constantly being approached um, uh, with uh, offers to uh, for drugs or other things, and some of the public safety we saw. Um, you know, I think just wanting to. Um, you know, it was a cold weekend that weekend and trying to stay warm and understanding why people will do some of the things they did. You know, I remember looking forward to getting on the track train because you might be warm for a few stops and that. And, and as, a, as a member of the public and a utilizer of mass transit, we're oftentimes critical of the homeless who are on the mass transit system um, and make others feel unsafe. And I, I'm, I understand that perspective as well. But, um, 
it's a, it's complex and people who are trying to survive and their needs are complex and I think we can do a better job of of um, helping them to help themselves. May I ask one more question that is a, is a little more hardcore and I don't want to get in to too many numbers and things but um, some critics of the new model have looked at its math yeah. and have had questions that and I can't even recall now how many we're talking about, but 300 or 400 people in a, in a resource center uh, for three months to be stabilized, if I remember the new model, and then moved to uh, affordable housing for yeah. them. Um, there, was a, there are questions of can you cure these addictions and mental illness issues that quickly Will there be sort of a, uh, an eddy form at each of these shelters where more people can't be taken in because people are returning into the system because they didn't stay clean and things? And I'm sure, as you know, any, anyone knows who have uh, addi addicts in their family, which seems to be all of us now, yeah. know that um, it's, all, it's difficult yeah. to overcome addiction. So there are a few questions that people have raised with the, with the math. First, the, the um, road home shelter has a capacity of about 1,100 people. Um, and the new, new shelters are going to be sized anywhere from two to 300 people. So we're going to be building 700 beds to replace a facility that currently has 1,100 beds. So there's a math question there. What's mm -hmm. going to happen there? Um, you know, the way that we address that, I think, gets to also to your question, too, about what is a resource center. A shelter I, the, the road home shelter right now, we have people who are there for years, um, if, uh, but, uh, you know, or many, many months, and some people there who are there for even for years. Um, what we're trying to do, you know, it's, it's not that we're really bad at doing math and don't know that 1,100 doesn't equal 700 and what's the problem going to be, but it's really a commitment to say if we provide the services and getting people access to the services and connected to those services, maybe we can get them through the system faster and back on their feet faster. And by doing that, you can actually get by with 700 instead of 1100. One of, one of my uh, base assumptions about this is that emergency shelter is not a good place to have people. And to, and to just resign ourselves to our, the fact that our system is going to serve the homeless in an emergency shelter, I think is underwhelming and, and short-sighted. It's not the new model. Um, I, I oftentimes analogize it to a healthcare system. If you have a healthcare system and the only place to get treatment in that healthcare system was the emergency room, you went to the emergency room and you stayed there until you were healthy, um, then that's a really expensive place. Uh, and you're going to have doctors who are treating everything from cancer to a broken bone, and it's, it's going to be expensive, and it's going to be less, much less effective. So in the healthcare system, you do have an emergency room, and it's important, but it's, and it's an important part of a healthcare system, but ideally, a person never has to go to an emergency room. They may go to a specialist immediately. They'll get into the system and avoid emergency rooms. Um, if they do go into an emergency room, they may be there just for a day, and then they get into more specialized treatment. So I, I analogize that to a homeless services system where I think in many ways right now what we have is only emergency shelter. And we're saying, you know, we need to build bigger emergency shelters to get people in there. And what I'm saying with the new model is let's not conceive of the, um, the emergency shelter as the only entry point 
and the place where people stay until they go back to a job in housing. Let's think of it as um, they may enter there, but ideally they're staying there for 30 days. And they may not, they're not going to be better after 30 days, but can we get them into a treatment program, maybe get them into uh, stabilized housing, probably some supported housing where there's some, um, their rent is, is uh, subsidized for a period of time, get them into housing, get them into treatment, get them into a job program, but also into housing, get them out of shelter as quickly as possible and into these other options where their needs can be addressed more comprehensively and effectively rather than a one-size-fits-all emergency shelter. So if we do, if we just do fall back to emergency shelter being the only place we serve people, then the new model is not going to work. Well, thank you, Mayor Ben McAdams. Uh, this has been Salt Lake Speaks from Salt Lake Magazine. I'm Glenn Warchell, the managing editor at Salt Lake Magazine. You can listen to uh, Mayor McAdams' ideas and other things that are going on in our community at saltlakemagazine.com slash podcast.